makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Greetings and good day and welcome my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart and the whole world is a beautiful day. It's good for all of us to be here today and let the people hear your voice respectively and celebrate life in addition to relativity. This is First Voices Radio. I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. And our website is firstvoicesindigenousradio.org. I want to thank you for your generosity as always and for being here and there. You know who you are. Without you, we cannot continue. I'm your host, Teokas and Ghost Horse. This is an all-native produced all native hosted First Voices Radio now in its 28th year of broadcasting. And First Voices Radio producer is Liz Hill. And thank you again, Liz, for this next program. I wanted to talk about an article that I've seen the last few months and last few weeks, and even ongoing as we pay attention to the political climate, there's much more, another type of climate that, quote unquote, is living with fire may lead to less destructive wildfires, say indigenous land stewards. And I want to talk with Deborah Utatio Kroll uh, about her article that she wrote and that came out, and I was very interested in it. And Deborah, is that this, as you as a indigenous affairs reporter for the Arizona Republic, and, and you're a citizen of the Halon Solinian tribe, which uh, um, your coverage area is supported by that Katina Foundation and the Water Funder Initiative. 
in this intersection of climate, culture, and commerce, but your expertise in two years or two, excuse me, two decades of reporting on Native issues. And, and I wanted to talk today about what people may not be hearing so much of unless maybe you're there experiencing it and you're wondering why this is not more more urgent. You know, I, I think the political climate is urgent, but there's something more that you may not even be thinking of politics if you're basically fighting for your life. And this, this article titled Living with Fire may lead to this less destructive wildfires. And these, this is what indigenous peoples were saying all along. Uh, Deb, you, you did some research and talk to Native people about this topic, and I want to welcome back you back to First Voices Radio again. Thank you for being here. Well, to set for for bringing me back on. Um, yes, I'm. I my journalism is informed by my experience as a member of a California tribe that did engage in land stewardship, including burning to promote biodiversity, to promote the growth of, of beneficial plants for basketry, for medicine, for food, for other life forms like, like birds, animals, and, and fish, even to, to eat and to sustain themselves and to continue the, the ecology. So I've been long interested in, in writing about how how indigenous fire stewardship and indigenous land stewardship can can be returned to the land and to reverse a lot of the the effects of of uh, in California now we're up to about 170 years of federal and state land management which has resulted in a lot of of bad effects including extremely destructive catastrophic wildfires which are largely fueled by dead brush and and, and other dead plants um, laying upon the ground, piled up on top of each other, um, proliferation of trees that go up like matchsticks, trees too close together, and lately over 150 million dead trees alone in one national forest in Central California Combine that with with our changing climate, which is making for a hotter, drier um, weather pattern, and all it takes literally is a spark to ignite. And in August in California, we saw lightning strikes all over the state in the middle of a historic heat wave. We saw tornadic winds that, that blew those sparks into all the dead and decaying brush and the dead trees from the drought and and literally create fire tornadoes. And I'm working on a story right now about the Karuk tribe and its experience surviving the Slater fire where half the town of Happy Camp, which is which is an ancestral Karuk town, half of that town burned down. hundred and sixty homes were lost. Two people lost their lives. There's all, you know, a month later, power still hasn't been restored. They're all running off generators. And they have been trying very hard to reinstitute cultural, cultural land stewardship, including burning. And so you'll see some of those stories. But in the meantime, 
this is actually the that will, will be the third in a series. The first one that we're talking about today came out in August. What can happen? What are the advantages that that indigenous land stewards see as as bringing fire back to the land to a land that's already fire adapted and what the benefits could be the second article which which um you all can find at azcentral.com shows what happens when a tribe does exert its sovereignty and and use its its sovereign status to manage its lands, and that would be the the White Mountain Apache tribe, and how they're bringing their forestry back um, from a disastrous fire in 2002, while still preserving the ecology, preserving the watersheds, preserving sacred and cultural sites, you know, pre- preserving its lakes, preserving it's it's world class big game hunting. They're balancing between ecological preservation and economic development to provide jobs to keep tribal members living there. And so the third one's going to be, well now let's see what happens when a tribe um is blocked from using its inherent sovereignty and its sovereign status. Well, that would be very interesting to look at that. And it sounds like there's, there's always these, these uh, obstacles to overcome as Native people and, and knowing what are even our sovereignty, but even personal sovereignty. And, and, and I get to where you included Teresa Greger, who's this American Indian Studies mm-hmm. professor at the University of California State University, Long Beach. And she said, which really grabbed me, you start, you have to start looking at the world around you in a different way. Many people may not know what that is if you can say this without measurements it's a it's a it's a different relationship and would you maybe explain what she might have meant what she what she meant and what a lot of the the fire stewards i've spoken with meant is that you have to look at the earth as a an entity with which human people have a relationship uh you have to look at it as as a whole ecology, you know, one of the things that I learned when I went to college and I specialized in science writing, um, a Native American person doing science writing sounds like an oxymoron, but it's really not because I'm able to to make that adjustment in my head between looking looking at the world as a Native person, where we see the relationships, we see how everything works together and how you adjust one part of the ecology, another one's affected. Those same prescribed burns that people complain about because they produce some smoke also cools off the the rivers and cools off the waters and actually triggers the salmon to return from the ocean. It's all interconnected. It's all related. And and Western science tends to take things one step at a time. They, they tend to classify, to quantify, to, to model, to list, whereas native ecological science, you know, which is embodied in traditional ecological knowledge, looks at the world as an interconnected system of relationships. And that is the difference. If, if we're simply coming across to this, a Western science 
science is now coming to the same conclusions that that traditional ecological knowledge-based science came to thousands of years ago. It's just two different approaches. And one of the things that, that I'm encouraged by is that there is a growing number of Western, what they call classically trained scientists, especially in this new specialty called pyrogeography, where they're studying the relationship between fire and the lands where that are fire adapted, like grasslands and forest lands and, and chaparral and, and all of those different ecologies. And one of the really cool things is that some of these practitioners of pyrogeography are also traditional ecological knowledge holders from their own tribal communities. So they, too, are merging the two together to come up with a systems-based approach to land stewardship. And that land stewardship would, would include this familiarity through the stories and through the language, would it not? Yes. Yes, it's through the stories, it's through the language, it's through through getting out and, and you know, being on the land, seeing how the land reacts. It's the same thing as, as my mother, who's an elder in our tribe, watches the different aspects through, through the summer. When does the turkey vulture leave? When do the seagulls come back? How much grass is on the ground? How many acorns are on the oak trees, the various species of oak trees that we depends upon for, for sustenance. And she puts all of those facts together and she comes up with, we're going to have a hard winter. We're going to have a, a, an easy winter. You, there's probably going to be an El Nino coming along because she has been trained by her elders and she has observed and she has paid attention to what the earth is doing for her 81 years. And so she's really good at figuring out you know, season to season, what's going to happen. And that is what what traditional ecological knowledge is all about. Um, that observation, the the songs, the stories, the ceremonies, the the world renewal ceremony up in Northern California, the the bear dances going on right now where we put the bears to sleep, the um, the big tribal gathering that will be coming along here soon in, in my part of, of California where we, where we thank Creator for another year of, of, of good acorn harvest and thank Him for another year of, of, of life and looking forward to the next year and asking for, for similar, you know, for similar blessings upon the earth. These are, are what help sustain our world. We're speaking with Deborah Utasia Kroll, who is an Indigenous Affairs, Affairs reporter for the Arizona Republic and of the Halon Saloni Nation, I would say. Um, you know, you, you really have my mind going. It's like, okay, so we are timekeepers, seasonal timekeepers, and we watch things in flux. And to pass that on means that even, even now in this current uh, modern day recorded history, we also re have recorded that flux that happened to the changes of the land in, in Northern California where your people are from. But also, would, would that be the macrocosm, excuse me, the microcosm of the macrocosm to, 
to lack of a shorter term, is is that's a relationship that we are applying to the whole where your, your grandma, your mother would say, we're going to have a harder winter. But that would get into where we say, well, Native people are doing the prof- prophecies again. But really it has to do with more of the, the practical mystery that we have been in tune with. And we again, the, the sovereignty of a nation as, as a Holon people actually are is is that's what our sovereignty is, is that, that tie, that relation, that, that uh, relationship, that familiarity with the land. And that is being taught now to the younger folks, such as, as yourself and, and even younger people. Oh, absolutely. Okay. You know, one of the factors of, of this current round of climate change is that my elders tell me the climate's always changing. And over the past thousands and thousands of years that California people have have been in, in our in our various lands and and have have stewarded the lands as, as directed by creator when he when he put us on here on the earth is that is that we understand that there are cycles there's going to be cycles of wet cycles of dry cycles of floods, cycles of, of drought, and and one really cool thing that a, a scientist told me that is going to be in a future story is that is that one facet of traditional ecological knowledge and indigenous land stewardship is that it is inherently changeable, that, that because we know know about these cycles we know how to adjust our stewardship to adjust to each cycle and the elders also tell me that this climate change is unlike others because it's human caused it's not something that was a natural natural part of a changing climate it's not caused by volcanic eruptions it's not caused by by all the various other long-term climatic changes that happen to the earth. This one is fast and it's caused by humans. They, they keep telling me this, you know, it's, it jives with what the Western scientists who have studied the climate tells us. So as a indigenous journalist, it's, it's my duty to report on how the Western climate scientists in the indigenous practitioners are all agreeing that that this change is, is happening, what it's caused by, and then the indigenous people can come forward and say, we have lived through similar climatic changes, maybe not caused by humans, but we've lived through these, and these are tools that, that we can use to adapt and to mitigate and to get through this change until the climate changes back again. I think that's incredible just just to hear that clip. Um, and I think about the redwoods, and most people are saying, "Oh, they're they're going to be destroyed. They're all gone." Are they indeed nope. all gone? Or are they 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 nope. know how to survive this? They do know how to survive this. Um, there was some concern because of the really really bad drought that California emerged from, and is still in some respects still in. That even they were starting to get stressed. But then when you saw the fires going through Santa Cruz County and, and places north where some of the red root, where it burned through some of the redwood groves and people were really upset. They're thinking the redwoods were destroyed. 
And when the, the biologists were able to get back in, they said a lot of them are doing just fine. They're a little bit singed on their bark, but they're going to be fine. They Even the redwoods, um, as part of the earth, know how they're, they're fire adapted. You know, they've lived, some of those those redwood trees have probably lived through two, 3,000 years of periodic fire coming through. They're, they're adapted to fire. Um, the big thing that, that happened was that there were buildings that burned that people were grieving over. The Amamutsun tribe, which is engaged in a partnership with Santa Cruz County to do some meadow restoration, some of the barracks where their, their stewards stayed or burned. I mean, these are, these are things that, that we can fix. Um, but what, what happened was that a lot of the dead stuff burned. Some of the trees that didn't need to be there burned. You know, it cleared a lot of the, the dead stuff out of the way. Those ashes will, will start percolating back into the earth and release nutrients, which will revive the, the lands. It'll, it'll nurture the redwoods that are still there. It will, it will stimulate the growth of, of, fresh plants and fresh growth and fresh grass that, that deer and other ruminants need. It's going to, you know, oak trees sprout in fire. I mean, they're, they're just like pine trees. The acorns will sprout after a fire, and that ash nourishes, nourishes new oak trees. And, of course, the oak trees are very, very important to California Indian peoples, and they're also very important here in Arizona where I live now to the Apache peoples, the Yavapai peoples, the Awesome peoples, because they, too, sustain themselves off acorns, different species of oak, but it's the same It's the same um, balance of nutrients in those acorns. All that happens after a fire. The key that indigenous practitioners tell me is to keep the fires to a level that doesn't destroy everything in its path. If you can, if you can keep these smaller fires going at regular periods of time, when the inevitable big giant wildfire comes through, once it hits those treated areas, it slows down enough to where it can be managed. If you don't have all, all of these lands treated and, and, and human stewarded, they come through and they destroy everything in their path. People die. Uh, buildings are destroyed. Um, there are there are homes in tribal communities. There were irreplaceable pieces of regalia that are destroyed. You know these are the losses that 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 unrestrained, unmitigated wildfires can cause. And it's it's not just the the practitioners speaking now. It's the Western scientists speaking, and this is something that people need to pay, pay attention to. You answered my question in my head, is that will they be paying attention to Native people once this is all, the fires are basically practically out? Um, will they be in, in instituting that, instilling it within their laws that we must go to indigenous ways of, of knowing, living, and being with the land. And this is a big marker, to, to, to me at least, that, to say that they should now look to, to indigenous folks, especially in that area in California where the yeah. fires are. Would you think that is so and it will be on its way? It's, it's coming. Um, one of the people I spoke to for the upcoming story said that, that 
it's taken a hundred years to get where we're at, and it may very well take a hundred years to get things back to where they should. Um, you're basically looking at a generational change, a change in cultures, a change in in land agency man. I mean, land management agency cultural changes, and bureaucracies have a really, really hard time changing. But but change must occur. Um, we do have some some good spots that if we can get more native people into the U.S. Forest Service, into state forestry and land management agencies, and they start rising through the ranks and becoming forest supervisors and forest rangers and and um, fire supervisors and forestry forestry people, the the better the faster that change will come. Um, one of the things with the, with the White Mountain Apache story is that a lot of, a lot of the agency, the, even the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Fort Apache Fire Agency, most of the senior management are Apache people, and they are invested in keeping their lands um, managed. They're invested in keeping keeping maintaining that balance between protecting ecological and cultural sites and providing jobs for the people you know this is what it's going to take we need more karuk people in the forest service we need more yurok's more hoopas more salinans more monos more pomo people um we need to send our young people to forestry school and into biology uh, we need to get them trained, and then we need to get them placed in these positions to where they can they can make this change from inside. We, there's a lot we can do from the outside, but change is 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 going to be faster if if we can get indigenous people into these agencies and get them into positions where they can spark spark the change. So, any young people listening to this. Go for a forestry degree. I can tell you right now, the the BIA Fort Apache agency has a job for you. Oh, wow. they they are short of people. They will hire you. That's right. So you have a job. You know, go go get that education, and then learn learn from indigenous people who have been already doing this. That's so good. Thank you, Deb Crow, for this time. I, on a lighter side, I guess it is light side what you just said, but I was watching a small video clip of. Indigenous or native firefighters, and before they went to fight a fi- fight a fire, they were dancing. They were dancing to to a native drum, going into fight a fire, basically. And I, that's what lightened my heart. That's what you're talking about—the ceremony yeah. that we have. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so great to to have you again, Deb Kroll, on First Voices Radio, and talking about the management of those fires out in California. Four million, more than four million acres burned. Mm-hmm. One million still burning, and only fifty percent of that is been under control. Thank you so much for being here on First Voices Radio, Deb. Thank you. Just for for having me on again and calling me anytime. All right, we'll do that. Thank you so much. This is First Voices Radio. Oh,
Control by Stephen Marley. Our next section is by our guest co-host, um, uh, Kayla Kelly and Kayla Kelly Kanaka Maoli. It's an interview with Lori Jump, director of Strong Hearts Native Helpline. And as some of you may know or may not know today, this month is October. October is Domestic Violence Month, uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And uh, you'll hear about the latest legislation. Uh, great, this is a great interview. Please listen up as to what's going on in native country across this island called Turtle. And uh, thank you for joining us. We'll be back at you after Kayla and Lori Jump finish with this great interview. Thanks for joining us here on First Voices Radio. Aloha. I'm pleased to have the opportunity to sit in for Tiokasin in this segment of First Voices Radio and to welcome Lori Jump back to the show. Lori is a citizen of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians and the director of the Strong Hearts Native Helpline, now in its fourth year of operation. For listeners who are not familiar with what Lori does, I want to share a little bit about her many years of work, which includes more than 25 years as the program manager of the Advocacy Resource Center, also known as ARC. The ARC is a comprehensive victim services program for the Sault Ste. Marie tribe, providing advocacy, shelter, and civil legal representation for victims of domestic and sexual violence. Lori is also a founding member and former executive director of Uniting Three Fires Against Violence, Michigan's Tribal Coalition, and they provide training, technical assistance, and resources to support tribal programs in responding to domestic and sexual violence. Lori Jump, it's great to have you back on First Forces Radio. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's always great to connect. Today, we're going to spend our time talking about a very important observance that's taking place throughout October, and that's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. But first, to start out, Lori, can you please refresh our memories? What is Stronghearts Native Helpline? Why was it created and who does it serve? Sure, you know, um, Stronghearts Native Helpline was established in 2017 and our target population are um, American Indians and Alaska Natives um, primarily. However, we do serve anybody that calls us. Um, as you know, the rates of violence in our communities are very high. They're some of the highest in the United States. Um, and we they realized that, you know, our relatives were not reaching out to mainstream programs for help. And so that's why we were created. We were, you know, created by and for Native Americans. 
um, to help them process and and heal from their experiences and impacts of domestic and sexual violence. Can you give us some statistics? Tell us about the many faces of domestic violence. Domestic Violence Awareness Month is like, to me, it should be Domestic Violence Awareness Month every month. But it's super important that people get a sense of what's specifically how this affects Native peoples. So can you give our listeners some background and share some statistical information? Sure. The National Institute of Justice released a study in 2016, and for Native Americans, what they found was that more than 56% had experienced sexual violence. More than 55% had experienced intimate partner violence, and almost half of our relatives had experienced stalking and psychological aggression by an intimate partner. Of the estimated 1.5 million Native women who had experienced violence, 97% of the violence was committed by a non-Native perpetrator. Um, And so it's really, um, as I said, our statistics are so high and they they impact so many of our relatives um, and we have so many barriers um, that our relatives face due to just the unique legal status of, of tribes and, you know, geographic isolation, um, you know, all of those things. Um, but, you know, this is something that, you know, these crimes are not, um, you know, they, they don't discriminate. Right. And so everybody, you know, anybody could be, um, a victim of this type of crime. You know, we know that it crosses all, you know, demographic barriers. It doesn't matter how, how rich or poor you are. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how educated you are. All of those things are how much money that you earn that people sometimes consider protective factors, right? Um, But we know that domestic violence is one of those crimes where those things just don't matter. The potential for becoming a victim of this is, is, you know, is... It crosses all socioeconomic ethnic lines. I mean... Yes, exactly. Well, you know, you you just named... I mean, it's hard. It's always hard for me to get my mind around these kinds of numbers. Can you... I just want to go back over something you just said about what's the percentage of non-native on native violence? Um, 97% of the, especially the women who were, had experienced sexual violence had a non-native perpetrator. And that's really important because one of our biggest problems in, in Indian country is jurisdiction where tribes do not have the authority to prosecute a non-Native person who commits sexual violence on a Native American on tribal land. Um, And so it's almost like getting a free pass to um, go to these tribal lands um, and, you know, target Native women. Um, Some people have um, related it to hunting, Um, you know, being able to go out and do whatever it is you think you want to do and not have to suffer any consequences for it. So, you know, the uh, access to justice for these victims is um, extremely limited um, because we have to depend upon the federal um, government to take those cases, and and oftentimes they don't. You know, I have to, I mean, what you're saying, it's like it, this, this is a matter of sovereignty, not just, so it's the sovereignty over our bodies as women, and then 
our sovereignty as Native peoples actually is a part of this issue of domestic violence, right? Yeah, it's very much intertwined. Um, you know, it's, it's sovereignty, as you know, is just such a critical piece for Native peoples, for Native nations. Um, and it's something that they protect with, with their last breath, right? It's, it's like the, the, always at the base of our concern is, you know, what impact will different actions or laws or acts have on tribal sovereignty? Um, and so this is very much the same, though, you know, a woman should have absolute sovereignty over her body. And um, quite often, we don't. Well, I know we've had a few conversations on this show, and I know I keep going back to this every time we talk, the ugly word, colonization, and the effect it has had and continues to have on our Indigenous peoples up there on the continent, but also here in Hawaii. To me, this is a core problem. This is a core cause uh, of why it's so prevalent in our communities, domestic violence is in our communities. And and. It, I see it as one of the most important historical issues to read into domestic violence in Indian country, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, my sense is that it's ignored or overlooked almost completely by non-natives. And so we end up getting this double whammy because we get colonized. We've been colonized for centuries. And then there's the violence that comes with that. Then there's the part of the colonial mentality that looks at natives and expects us to be magical or unaffected or there's like a disconnect in this narrative of domestic violence. So can you talk about that? And like I said, correct me if I'm wrong, but does colonial violence breed domestic violence? You know, you, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head um, and you're absolutely correct. We believe that, you know, our ancestors were not violent people. Um, they respected women they, you know, we were life givers and, and, you know, leaders and we provided um, advice to, to our leaders. And, um, you know, so we had very important roles, uh, um, you know, in our, our history, right? And so when we say that domestic violence is not traditional, we're thinking back to that time when women really were sacred. Um, and colonization brought this to us. You know, this is not something that we did to our women and or our men. And, you know, I do want to acknowledge that certainly there are male victims out there. Um, you know, but this was not part of our um, existence, really. And, um, you know, so we do believe that it goes back to colonization. You know, we know that the European, ver you know, I, I guess vision of, of women was very different from our own. Um, you know, they were looked at as, as property of their husbands. Um, and there were various laws that, you know, you could hit a woman with a stick as long as it was no bigger around than your thumb. And so, you know, all of that kind of came with the colonizers. And um, I believe that we're still feeling the impact of that today, for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, with all of the shocking statistics, some of which you referenced earlier, I mean, it is a matter of life and death for too many of our relatives who are experiencing domestic violence in their daily lives. And I know it's particularly ominous during this time of pandemic when so many victims are sheltering in place with their abusers. Can you talk a little bit about domestic violence and the pandemic? Yeah, for sure. You know, we have heard 
um, primarily anecdotally um, from our partners across the country um, about the alarming increases that are happening. And, and, you know, this is really something that's been documented worldwide, you know, due to exactly what you said, sheltering in place with your abusive partner. Um, And so we know that it's happening. Um, You know, that's one of the reasons why we put into place a chat service. Um, We know that, you know, victims don't have the, the freedom and the time and space to maybe make a phone call where somebody could overhear them, their partner could overhear them. And so we put, we did implement chat services. Um, If you go to our website, you can see a chat now button. Mm -hmm. It's, like texting, right? And so right. you could be on your laptop or your tablet or your phone and texting with an advocate and nobody hears what you're saying, right? You don't actually have to speak it out loud. And so for somebody that might be sheltering in place with their partner, you know, they can go into another room and, and have a conversation with somebody about what their options are without, you know, that person, their abusive partner hearing them. Right. No, that's, and so how is that you know, now that it's up and running, how has that been going? Yeah, it's, you know, it's going well. Um, We have been, um, you know, trying to really get the word out. We've really increased our um, kind of our social media and, you know, posting and things like that and advertisement to, to get the word out. It is still considered, you know, a fairly new service. And so it's hard to say, um, you know, it's almost too new to measure it. Yes, exactly. And so, but, but, you know, it seems to be going well. I think that, you know, our advocates have, have, um, were able to quickly transfer their abilities and skills over to this new medium. Um, and so I think it's going really well. Well, I think I confused that with something else because the last time we talked, which was a few months ago, and I want to revisit this, It was about the launch of Strongheart Sexual Violence Advocacy. Can you tell us what that is and how that's been going? Yeah. So one of the other things that we've realized in this past couple of years that we've been operating is that, you know, just as there was no national helpline for Native Americans experiencing domestic violence, there has not been a sexual violence hotline. And so we do take a lot of calls from people who have experienced this form of violence as well. And, um, you know, our training primarily had been surrounding um, domestic violence. Um, So we brought in some training and, um, you know, retrained our advocates to, to better respond to people that are experiencing sexual violence. Um, And we launched that um, this year as well during this pandemic. And so, you know, we are getting those calls as well. And, you know, it's just another way that we're trying to fill in the gaps um, for services and resources that are not widely available to our relatives across the country. You know, this is, you and I have talked several times about domestic violence in native world. And I still get the sense that it's, (laughs) I get the sense that it really is an uphill struggle to get the word out, to get people to understand the special needs that native peoples have with regard to this specific kind of violence. And, and then hearing like, I'm, you're reminding me like there's, that's two things you've launched since the pandemic. I mean, that's a lot just in a few months. I'll tell you, we've been very busy. They have just been, 
rocking it. You know, they really have put their heart and soul into into the work that we do. And, and I appreciate them so much for their efforts to really um, move these needs forward, um, you know, get the training in, get the, the infrastructure built for the chat, all of that. Um, we did it very quickly in a situation where we were all working from home. And so, you, you know, it was a difficult time really to get everything done. Uh, when you're not in the same building, you can't sit down and have a chat with somebody. Um, you know, it it wasn't easy. And so I, I just so appreciate the staff that we have at Strong Hearts. Well, I mean, if only the federal government could be as efficient um, or, or state governments as well. In fact, you know, that reminds me, uh, you know, I want to ask you about, because people need to understand that this is an issue that connects to the missing and murdered Indigenous women. And, and I'm wondering what your, you know, if you have any thought about what the Trump administration launched, I think it was probably about a month, maybe a little bit, a month and a half ago, about on the subject of the missing and murdered Indigenous women. Do you have any, you know, sense of what that, that is? <laughs> sure. You know, I think that, you know, what we have to recognize is that the missing and murdered um, is on the continuum of violence, right? And it's kind of that ultimate um, violent act. Yes. That is is definitely connected to domestic and sexual violence as well. And so um, I do know that, you know, the administration has launched a couple of things. Um, Operation Lady Justice is a task force, um, but they've also hired um, more recently, I believe the number is, the total number will be nine um, coordinators in a number of of different states. Um, in fact, the first one was in Minnesota um, to have to have an office with a coordinator that's staffing that to work on that issue. Um, and so, I think it's too soon to say whether or not it will be successful. I think it will be very critical that these persons that are hired reach out to the tribe, the tribal nations in the area that they serve. Um, and recognize the importance of working with them, um, you know, at every step, every step of the way. That's going to be critical to their acceptance in Indian country and their ability to be successful in the work that they're trying to do. It hadn't even occurred to me that they wouldn't even start by hiring people straight out of the Indian nations. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, I have high hopes for the effort. I hope that, you know, as I said, that they're going to be working closely with the people there mm -hmm. in each of their communities. Um, you know, it was disappointing that, it, you know, the media coverage in Minnesota indicated that, um, you know, Minnesota has a statewide um, task force itself. And the people that are working on that task force were not notified of this new office until until basically it happened. And so um, that's why it's so critical for them to reach out. I know that there was some disappointment there, um, and rightly so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's so important that we keep vigilant about the issue of domestic violence. You know, how the strong hearts want to bring more visibility to the subject this month. I've read your, you have an official statement. Strong Hearts has an official statement that was issued. And, and it's great, by the way. 
Thank you. You call upon a number of individuals and organizations to support the movement and to end domestic violence. Who are these entities and what kind of responsibility does each of them have in the movement? You know, I think we all share a responsibility in the movement, right, to uphold um, the sacredness of women's bodies and, and, you know, that sovereignty of our bodies that we talked about um, and to, to really um, look towards what we can each individually and as organizations do to, to move the movement along, to further the movement. Um, you know, education and awareness is, is critical. It's something that, you know, it's the only way really that change happens is by educating people. And so, um, you know, that ongoing education is really critical um, for everybody, right? For our leaders, for our women who may not know that this is, is it's wrong because sometimes it is generational um, to perpetrators to understand that what they're doing um, is so very wrong. And so I think that we all bear a responsibility to provide that education when we can. Mm-hmm. Well, which, you know, which entities, are, you know, are you specifically wanting to see step up and take more responsibility? Are you talking about most mainly about the government or? Um. Well, I think, you know, I certainly the government, I think that, you know, um, there has been, there have been a couple of stimulus bills that have been passed recently to kind of deal with, you know, the um, impact of the pandemic and, and, uh, you know, I know that there's been some consternation that, you know, organizations doing this work, um, who were kind of left out of those, um, the first stimulus bill. And, you know, so I, I think that, you know, the government does have a responsibility to lift up the safety of women and, and to fund the services that are so critically needed. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we've talked about the disparity of resources. You know, when you look at the number of shelters across the country, there's almost 1,700 of them but there are less than 60 Native American culturally appropriate shelters, Mm. you know, for 574 tribes. So it's, that's a problem. And, and really the, that falls at the feet of the federal government to fund those programs to provide life-saving services. You know, I wish we had more time to talk because this is such an important subject and this is the month to talk about it. Lori, it's been an honor to share this sacred space with you again. And to close out, how can our listeners get hold of Strong Hearts? And please tell us your website, phone number, hours of operation, and any social media contacts. Sure. Well, our website is www.strongheartshelpline.org. Um, and on our website, you know, we have a number of um, informational resources. And you can also find our chat now button. Um, to for digital advocacy, our phone number is one eight four four seven native. Um, numerically, that's eight four four seven six two eight four eight three. Our current hours of operation are seven a.m. to ten p.m. Central Standard Time. And of course, social media. Please follow us. We're on um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, so you know, give us a follow and. Uh, 
help spread the word. Lori Jump, Director of Strong Hearts Native Helpline. Mahalo Nui for being our guest today. From all of us here at First Voices Radio, we applaud you and everyone at Strong Hearts for all you do to educate us and advocate for victims of domestic violence, dating violence, and sexual violence in our communities. I'm Ann Kayla Kelly. Ahuiho, malama pono. And that is Ann Kayla Kelly, with, uh, who is Tanaka Maoli from Hawaii, in an interview, interview with Lori Jump, Director of Strong Heights, Strong Hearts and Native Helpline. Our next guest, uh, excuse me, just to remind you, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and uh, we take our part in that as people, as nations. And our next guest here is really important to pay attention to Cody Coyote. Um, he's, we have, we're going to play a song after we do a short interview, feature him in this. He is a multi-award win, uh, award nominated and winning, award-winning hip-hop and electronic artist and and we're going to talk about his new music video, award-winning song, Manido de Weigan. And Cody, I think I'm saying that correctly, but I'd like to welcome you to First Voices Radio. And they're going to premiere this on First Voices Radio, if not the United States Airwaves here on First Voices. And uh, this 2020 award-winning release of Indigenous Music Countdown has led to the creation of this project in partnership with Factor, which is the foundation assisting Canadian talent on recordings. The Government of Canada, Ajax Creation and ZYK Marketing. Cody is Ojibwe and Irish descent with ancestry from Matachewan, First Nation in, Cal- in, in Ontario. So thank you for coming here uh, on our airwaves here again, Co- Cody, out of uh, Canada. Thanks for coming. Oh, good to meet you guys for having me, Theo. Uh, I just want to say Ani Bojo. Hello and welcome, everybody. My name is Cody Coyote and... Uh, as mentioned, I live here on unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin territory, which is now so-called Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. And I'm from Matachuan First Nation, um, which translates to where the water meets. And where the water meets is, is uh, it's a good, it's a good little, uh, segue into Manado de Wagan. What does that mean? So Manado de Wagan, it means uh, spirit drum in Ojibwe. And uh, it's it's got a lot more meaning than something so basic like an English translation. Like the way that it was described to me is like, that's like that heartbeat. Uh, it's that heartbeat of Mother Earth, right? That spirit drum. And every time that we play that drum, um, it echoes that voice of, of the animal that was used to create it. So let's say like uh, a deer had used, uh, sorry, like we used the deer hide from a deer to create that spirit drum. It is just honoring that animal and that, uh, that four-legged being from, uh, from Mother Earth. When when I did view this on on iTunes and, and Google Play and Spotify, YouTube, I heard it TikTok, but I saw it uh, the video and it really said the story of what we endure as Native peoples and we get through the racism and we get through the oppression, suppression because of our culture. They ended up around the fire with with the young people beating on a drum, as you say. And I really uh, commend you on this because it, it is part of that motivational speaker that you are. Also, you have this. You do a radio show also in Canada, out of Ottawa, the Beat on ninety five point seven FM in Ottawa, mm-hmm. Ontario. Thanks for doing that. Um, anything else that you can say before we go out with this song, Cody? Yeah, I think it would just be like highlighting that that story that is told in that music video. That's my story, you know, and uh, I, I applaud and I honor, you know, you sharing that a lot of other people can resonate with it because that's what we want from it, right? Um, I was severely bullied. I faced uh, racism on numerous accounts when I was younger. I ended up getting involved in gang life. I found my way out through culture 
And um, here we are with this this beautiful project that hit number one on the Indigenous Music Countdown earlier this year. And uh, it's in regular rotation in a lot of different radio stations. And I just want to say kichimigwech, like big thank you for, for supporting this uh, this part of the journey. And where could we get hold of you, Cody? Uh, so people can get in touch with me through my website, which is CodyCoyoteMusic.com. Uh, any platform that you're on, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, at Cody Coyote Music as the handle. I'll catch you guys. Rise up with the sun, feel free when I run. Heartbeat, let the drum still see where I'm from. Move calm, get jibazo, that way he gone. Spirit asleep, but now it's awake. Hear when it speaks, grows harder to take. Hair like the trees, sweet grass with a breed. Connection so deep, grows harder to break. Dancing with pride, healing inside. The soil beneath, revealing my time. Chanting alive, the drum is my guide. The language I speak will revitalize. of life and we won't let it fade dancing with pride healing inside the water beneath revealing my time chanting alive the drum is my guide the language i speak will revitalize Man, it does. 